Stream Stories UK here again for Series 4, Episode 25. This one is Daniel Dunglass Hume, uh, a famous medium who was born on the 20th of March, 1833, and he died on the 21st of June, 1886. So Hume was possibly the most famous physical medium. He was born in Scotland, but at a young age emigrated to the United States with his family, who were religious nonconformists. As a teenager, Hume was said to attract wrappings similar to those of the Fox sisters to the extent that he was asked to leave the family home. Hume was uh, living in New York State, not far from the Fox sisters, who were getting so much attention from the newspapers in mid 19 century America, the Fox sisters whose fame started the spiritualist movement in around 1848. So Hume was a tall thin man with strawberry blonde hair and broad shoulders with large teeth and blue red rimmed eyes. He was artistic and musical, he had an excellent memory being able to recite long texts. Hume claimed it was probably true to be an illegitimate child of an aristocratic father and as a result he claimed an aristocratic heritage which was deemed to be an advantage in 19th century. Hume's grandfather was thought to be Alexandra, the Earl of Hume. Hume is said to be a modest, diffident character who claimed to have no idea how the phenomena happened, or the spirits happened, as he was just a vessel that the spirits used to communicate. From an early age, Hume was said to have had visions and experienced paranormal incidents and was thought to have had his first seance in the spring of 1851. He soon became well known for his abilities as a medium. A committee from Harvard University came to investigate his abilities and testified that the table that they had been sitting around in daylight had pushed them and floated several inches off the ground and reared up as if it was a horse on two legs. They concluded that there could be no doubt that Hume's power was genuine. Hume certainly impressed a lot of people at a time when spiritualism was proving a popular topic. His fame soon spread on America's east coast. He made a good income from donations from wealthy patrons, but he was always stressed that he did not charge for his services. Hume became ill with tuberculosis in 1854, and it was said that Hume was thought it best to recuperate in Europe although it's more likely that he wanted to make more a move uh, as other mediums had made in order to extend his reputation. Hume left for Britain in March 1855, coming with a reputation as an impressive physical medium. When he arrived in London, Hume was soon lionised and funded by wealthy patrons who were interested in spiritualism, and his fame soon spread amongst spiritualists, although there were still many doubters. Hume later toured Europe, always as the guest of wealthy patrons. He played up his links to the aristocracy so he could be perceived as one of them and of being of good breeding. On his European tour, Hume was said to have instigated some extraordinary seances, communicating with spirits in different languages, which had to be translated and producing what sitters testified as genuine apparitions. There was also behaviour that scandalised English and American society when they heard of it. 
Hume was relying on others to put up, put him up on his travels, and letters later revealed a callous and lack of gratitude towards his hosts, as well as other questionable behaviour. While in Florence, in Tuscany, Hume gave a number of seances to wealthy people, but he upset devoted Catholics, as it was thought he was a spirit medium, which to them meant he was not much better than a witch. A government minister was said to have warned Hume not to stand near a lighted window in case somebody took a shot at the sorcerer with a silver bullet. Hume was attacked and gossip about him was exaggerated. At this time Hume announced that the spirits had informed him that he was to lose his powers for a year, as he'd behaved badly, this probably being a tactic for Hume to lie low for a while. When Hume resumed his seances, he travelled to Paris where he became the social celebrity of that year, 1857, performing for the royal family and the aristocracy of Europe, and being on intimate terms with royalty. This in turn caused much jealousy and hostility, to the extent that Hume returned to America for three months to recuperate from the hectic social calendar and vicious social backbiting that he seemed to engender. On his return to Europe, he was to meet his wife, a 17-year-old Russian, Alexandra de Kroll, known as Sasha. Hume travelled to Russia, where he was received by the Tsar Alexander II, and became a frequent visitor, and Hume became the toast of St. Petersburg society, as the wealthy and influential wanted to attend his seances, which were getting so much positive comment. Hume took a slow trip back to England in 1858 with his wife and their son and took up resident at Cox's Hotel, the Germain Street, the fashionable hotel in central London, often used by government ministers of the time as their permanent London residence. Hume soon became established in London society. William Cox owned a large hotel at 53, 54 and 55 Germain Street, London. He was a spiritualist and a patron for Hume. In 1862, Sasha died. Not only was Hume devoted to her, but relied on her income, which was a problem as her relatives claimed her estate. Hume always was welcome to stay with friends and patrons, but he did not have a regular income, which was a concern to him. An association was formed called the Spiritual Athenaeum, with Hume as secretary. It was formed as a means of supporting Hume financially and it was hoped that the fashionable society would support it by paying £5 a year subscription. However, it wasn't really a success. People did not want to be associated with it, as it may have inferred that they were not God-fearing Orthodox Christians, and so the money only trickled in. The association may have been more of a success if it had, been, if it had more purpose and tried to be an organisation for inquiry and experimentation, just as the Society of Psychical Research became 16 years later. But it was devised mainly as a method of providing an income for Hume. Hume had a fall from grace when there was a court case with a Miss Jane Lyon in 1867, when she adopted the 33-year-old Hume as her son. She hoped that, it would, that she would be accepted into the grand social circles that Hume moved. He, so he would inherit her wealth. It was to prove uh, an ill-fated relationship. The story was that Miss Lyon was 75 years old. 
She was rich and eccentric. Her husband died in 1859, but before he died, he told his wife that she would only survive him by seven years, and that time was up. Mrs Lyon met with Hume, and to her joy, Hume got through to her dead husband. He gave messages and raps, and she rewarded Hume with a £30 donation for the Spiritual Athenaeum Society. Arrangements were made for Hume to attend her house for more sessions, and allegedly her husband's spirit told Mrs Lyon that Hume was their son, and she should provide for him. The spirit suggested £700 a year. The average wage of a working man in London was about a pound a week, but £700 was considered a suitable income for a professional person at that time. Mrs Lyon went to the City of London's financial district to transfer £24,000 into an account for Hume, which would provide £700 a year income. Hume accompanied her in a handsome cab, and they were serenaded with gleeful rappings from what was supposed to be the spirit of Mr Lyon expressing his joy. Mrs Lyon soon had her doubts. She was using other mediums, uh, since she learnt that Hume had recently been expelled by the Roman Catholic Church as a sorcerer. When Hume tried to negotiate with Mrs Lyon over how she should support him, Hume was arrested and put in White Cross Street Depper's Jail. The trial was eagerly reported by the press and was a talking point of the day. In court, Lyon said that she had been tricked by a spirit. During the trial, Mrs Lyon came across as being somewhat deranged. She wasn't happy when parts of her private diary were read out in court. She had written that Hume was a greedy, fawning, sneaky hypocrite. Although his reputation was being torn apart, much to the delight of his critics and those that didn't like spiritualism, Hume was dignified, and if his opponents might have thought that the enigma of home would be destroyed, they were to be disappointed. Hume lost the case, which of course damaged his reputation with the public but he still had his supporters. The Lion case seemed to indicate that Hume seemed to have an otherworldliness and lacked common sense and self-preservation skills. During his association with Mrs Lyon, Hume was said to have had some sort of mental breakdown as her manner distressed him so much. Mrs Lyon was said to have been effusively affectionate to Hume in front of his aristocratic friends otherwise working herself into a state of resentment against him because of his coolness towards her. Hume also claimed that Mrs Lyon tried to seduce him after he became her adopted son. Hume at the time seemed to be obsessed by Caliestro, the alchemist, magician and occultist who seemed to have a similar life to Hume, albeit several generations previous, and had been a favourite with the French royal family before the revolution. After the case, Hume, who was facing a ruin, decided to do a reading tour of England, which proved a success. Hume proved to be a natural storyteller. He published what was called an autobiography of, him, of his life in 1864, telling of his career as a medium, attended by royalty and the leading literary and social elite of his day. It seemed likely that the book was actually written by a W.M. Wilkinson, with some help from a Mr. Chambers after Hume had given them letters and documentation and the information that would have been required to write the book. During 1870, Hume became a journalist, a correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he covered the Franco-Prussian War. 
During this time, he made another visit to Russia and met his second wife, Julie de Gormelin, a wealthy Russian who he also met in St. Petersburg. As a result of her influence, he converted to the Greek Orthodox faith. When visiting London, Hume agreed to be investigated by William Crookes. Crookes was a respected scientist, but also a spiritualist, and his report on Hume, published in the Quarterly Journal of Science in July 1871, was convinced of Hume's ability to levitate, elongate, hold burning coals and such like. In 1872, Hume decided to retire, and he spent his time between Russia and the south of France. He timed his retirement well, as interest in spiritualism had declined, and the lawsuit over his first wife's estate was decided in Hume's favour. Hume occasionally gave seances to friends or hosts after 1872, and it was reported that his psychic powers were undiminished. Hume was slowly wasting away with consumption tuberculosis. He had suffered from tuberculosis since uh, a young child and he died in 1886, aged 53. Well, what to make of D.D. Hume? For sceptics, Hume does prove a problem. He took part in so many seances, hundreds, possibly thousands, which were attended by a wide range of people. There were so many eyewitness accounts by sitters mostly positive, but also a small minority who described conjuring by Hume. The Society of Psychical Research admitted that the physical phenomena produced by Hume was unrivalled in comparison with any other medium. There are certainly, there certainly seemed to be something special about Hume, and the scale of the reports of the phenomena that he was said to effortlessly produce is astonishing. As said, there are so many accounts given about the phenomena witnessed at Hume's seances. I'll give some following examples. These were all given to the Society of Psychical Research, or the SPR, during 1889. So, a typical seance by Hume was described by a regular sitter. Mr. Hume makes a practice of asking anyone present to sit under a table to be a unable to assure his friends that no trickery was possible. I have sat several times and heard the raps above my head, some loud, some soft, and I've seen the table rise from the floor, and have passed my hand and arm clear through between the floor and the pedestal of the table while it was in the air. It happened several times when we'd been sitting in that way. Some of the company had been drawn back in their chair from the table, and once Mrs Parks, who was sitting next to me, was drawn at least a foot back, and then sideways about six inches. The bell, a bracelet, or a pocket handkerchief, or anything taken in one hand, and placed under the table, is taken by spirit hands, which are palpably warm fingers of various sizes and feeling. But when attempted to, when attempting to grasp one, they seem to dissolve in a curious manner, and leave an airy nothing. Mr. Hume always finishes his seances by going into a mesmeric trance, and in that state he tells the most astonishing and astounding things to the people present, sometimes bringing out incidents in people's private history quite as extraordinary as the spirit manifestations, and which do not leave the slightest doubt of him being a seer. Mrs. Parks has experienced this, and related a wonderful thing he told her about her family, in which he was perfectly convincing. Another account was given of a seance. It said, 
it begins by us sitting around Mr. Hume's table, which is rather large. It holds ten people sitting around it. We lay our hands flat on the table before us. After a while, there's usually a trembling of the table, in offering a strong tremulous motion of the floor and our chairs, and loud raps sound around the room and under the table. Then the table usually heaves up with a steady motion, sometimes clear off the floor, sometimes on one side at an angle of about 45 degrees. Hume's accordion would start playing the bellows, would rise and fall, and faint sounds would issue, gaining in strength, and at last swell out in the most beautiful spiritual airs of strange and fantastic character. On any particular air being called for, it's played, sometimes beautifully, and sometimes in a very fitful, uneven manner. On any occasion that questions being asked during the playing, the air of the sound swells out in three hard distinct strokes to mean yes, or one to mean no, or two to mean perhaps. I've several times sat next to Mr Hume when the spirits are playing the accordion, and he always holds one hand on the table and supports the accordion with the other. Sometimes the spirits will remove the instrument from his hand and carry it to some other person, and the same result is the consequence. All this phenomena which I have been enumerating have been done while in the dark, which some people say is necessary in a seance. Hume divided opinion, and there were many sceptics. Lord Lytton had a good understanding of the subject of the occult, and whose word was trusted. He thought Hume's powers were astonishing, but he thought there was something to do with Hume rather than spirits talking through him. Hume's messages were said to be obscure and personal, and they could only be known by the recipient. Consider some of these examples of personal information given to people by the spirits through Hume. These were followed up and checked by the SPR as being correct. And Mr B. Coleman was given messages by the spirits of his aunts, Elizabeth and Hannah, he did not recognise the names. He had never known any aunts of these names before. But on inquiry, he discovered that they were the sisters of his dead father, who had died before he was born. Mrs Hennings. She gave her testimony. Hume said to her, George is here, who was a nephew of Mrs Hennings. He was recently deceased when Hume mentioned an accident from a bite of a dog when... George was a boy at Dulwich, which was factually correct. In another instance, Raps gave the name out Pofi Sophie, and this was the pet name of a deceased child whose mother and aunt were present. Raps to the aunt said, You are not to blame, and I am happy. The aunt apparently had blamed herself morbidly for supposedly supposed carelessness in letting the child catch fever, which caused her death. The Countess Panagai's testimony. At her first seance, raps were heard under her hand, and they spelt out the name of Stella, and gave the correct age of death. The Countess said that she was an utter stranger to Mr. and Mrs. Hume. They had been but a few days in Florence, and had, they had heard her name for the first time, and only an hour or two before the seance. Her friends asked permission for, there to, for the Countess to be present at the seance and in her dress there was nothing to indicate mourning. She said a small hand grasped her hand while the messages continued. And I know, Mama, 
that you took the last pair of boots I wore and hid them away with my little white dress and a box that you'd ordered for the purpose. You must not open that drawer where the box is placed until you hear distinct raps on the bureau. Panigay, or the Countess Panigay, saying that not even my family knew of this box. The next morning, Madame Panigay invited a friend and they began to tell her of the seance and there were raps on the bureau. Madame Panigay unlocked the drawer, unlocked the box and took out the boots. On the elastic of one of the books was imprinted a perfect star and in the centre of each star an eye and at each of the six points there's a letter, united, forming the name of her darling Stella. Hume had never been in the house, probably had never even seen the house. At the same seance, the message was given to the Countess Panagai. Hume said to Chevalier Scoffetti, There's an old nurse of yours standing beside you, a Negro woman. The Chevalier could not recall such a person. Hume said, She says you ought not to forget her, for she saved your life when you were three years of age. You fell in a stream of water near a mill, and you were just about to be drawn into a water well when she rescued you. Chevalier Scoffetti now recalled the whole and acknowledged the communication. Scoffetti had been wholly unknown to Mr Hume till within three hours of the message being given, and not one of the remaining guests knew of the incident in question. Individual experiences that occurred with D.D. Hume were investigated by the SPR, and these included the following. W.N. Wilkinson of 44 Lincoln Inn Fields wrote that on the 7th of February 1889 he witnessed Hume handling a red-hot coal on a Sunday evening seance during the winter of 1869. He saw Hume take the coal from the fire, the size of a cricket ball, and carried it around the drawing room. He said to Lord Adair, Now, Lord, will you take this from me? It will not hurt you. Lord Adair took it from him and held it in his hand for about half a minute before he threw it back onto the fire. Wilkinson put his hand close to the piece of coal and felt the heat of it. Another burning coal experience was shared by Mr Veach, who told of a burning coal placed in his hand. I saw Mr Hume take the coal from the fire, moving his hands freely among the coals. It was about the size of a coffee cup, blazing at the top and red hot at the bottom. When I actually held it in my hand, the actual flames died down, but it continued to crackle and was partially red hot. It felt like an ordinary stone, neither hot nor cold. Mr Hume then pushed it off my hand with one finger onto a double sheet of cartridge paper, which at once was set on fire. A Mrs Senior gave evidence to the SPR. At their first meeting, Mr Hume described Mr Senior and added, You forgot to wind up his watch, and how miserable it made you. Now, Mrs Senior said this was a fact known to no living person but myself. I'd wound the watch the night that I'd lost my husband and resolved never to let it go down again. I forgot to wind it one night, and my agony was great when I discovered that in the morning. But I never mentioned it not even to my husband's sister, who was in the house with me. Dr Hawksley of Biamunda, Chertsey, was speaking to Frederick Myers of the SPR and told how he received a telegram announcing the death of a friend some distance away, Mrs Slingsby Shafto. He did not mention this to anyone. 
Later he called in on the Holmeses at Cox's Hotel. Hawksby was told that the spirits had a message and they spilt out the name, Slingsby Shafto. Followed by messages, Hawksby said that the messages were nothing that his own mind couldn't supply, but they would not have been known to Hume. Hawksby was of the opinion that spirits possessing Hume were able to gain information in the minds of people present and reproduce it. Hawksley thought that his mind had been read. It could have read his thoughts and feelings. He also told of a dinner party where a lord, who he did not want to identify, felt his hand being grasped by another under the table. The spirit hand. It was a long table, and it would have been impossible for Hume, who was sat down the other end, to have reached such a distance. Hawksley thought it would not be possible for one man to produce the phenomena that Hume seemed to produce. For example, lifting a heavy centre table with a twelve stone man on it. Hawksley was underneath the table at the time. He said he could sweep his arms freely beneath the casters of the claws to make sure there was no trickery. Other phenomena was mentioned, such as the playing of musical instruments on occasions where preparation or collusion of any kind was absolutely impossible. This brought Hawksley to the belief that in Mr. Hume's case there existed in or about his person an invisible agent capable of going out of his person and operating at a considerable distance from it, rapping on furniture at distant parts of walls or ceilings, or moving about the furniture. Dr. Hawksley described a seance at uh, Mrs. Milner Gibson's at Hyde Park in central London. It was a summer's evening about eight o'clock. I was sat near a large window against which stood a table, and on the table an ordinary large bell. Sitting very near the bell, I distinctly saw a well-shaped hand appear on the table, and after resting there for a short time, the hand rose, grasped the bell, and carried it away. We do not know where. While the hand was rested on the table, I rose from my seat and went to the table, and without touching the hand, examined it carefully by inspection. It looked like a grey, gauzy substance, exactly the form of a human hand, and it terminated at the wrist. Hawksby gave other information regarding Hume at the Cox's Hotel. He said Mr Cox never gave Hume a bill. He was treated as one of the family. Hawksby said that he'd never heard of Hume taking money from anyone, unlike other mediums. There was a Mr Hawkson Simpson of Corfe Castle, Wareham in Dorset. He wrote on the 7th of July, 1888, that in 1868 he was investigating D.D. Hume's phenomena. And on one occasion in good light, and in the centre of the room, I tested his elongation and contraction. It was repeated several times in rapid succession. Lord Crawford, who was then Master of Lindsay, was helping me. I placed D.D. Hume in a trance talking all the time, facing me. His heels were on the floor, and his toes were on my insteps, and a large book stretched over our two heads. While I observed his face, Lord Crawford carefully handled the muscles of his legs, and observed the waistcoat rise two or three inches above the trouser tops and fall again. Then we changed places. Then I tested the muscles of his legs. The changes in his face underwent, First larger, then smaller, then normal size. It was extraordinary. First his face seemed to gradually be inflated and enlarged at all points. Then it gradually became small in face and features and deeply wrinkled and puckered.
After this he was levitated slowly and swaying from side to side in the air. No one was near him. Coming to himself, he rushed into the garden and vomited. Whilst these things took place, he spoke as if he was someone else, and he spoke of himself in the third person. There were several other reports of human elongating his body. In spirit magazines at the time, it was told by credible witnesses of the elongation. There were also several accounts of, uh, of the spirit hands that appeared in Hume's seances. One of the phenomena frequently recorded is the melting or dissolution of the hand when firmly grasped or under close observation. Robert Bell, the writer of an article in the Cornhill magazine, told of a large hand which he seized, but it was said to have gone out like air in his grasp. Dr Carter Wilkinson told of a soft, warm, fleshy, substantial hand that he no sooner grasped uh, than it melted away. Mr Powers, who was a sculptor, said of the little hand that he took, it was warm, and evidently a child's hand. I did not loosen my hold, but it seemed to melt out of my clutch. Hands laid themselves in my hands, said Count Toystall, but as soon as I sought to retain one, it dissolved in my grasp. There was a retrospective article in the SPR published in 1889. That's in the journal, July 1889, for the uh, Society of Cyclical Research, which, in effect, was a summing up of Hume's career after his death three years previously. Hume's second wife, Julia, had recently written a book about her late husband's life as a medium, and she allowed the SPR, well, Frederick Myers, to examine the sources of the book, the letters and documents that were base material for the book. This admittedly helped to form a cosy relationship between the SPR and the supporters of Hume. There seemed to be a mutual understanding that each were helpful to each other, and the SPR tended to give Hume an easier time than others that had investigated. The criticism of Hume usually came from others not directly connected with the SPR. One of the questions that the SPR were asking was, was Hume ever caught in conjuring or trickery, which was referred to as fraud? The considered answer given was an uncertain negative in that Hume had never been caught out conjuring or attempting, attempting fraudulent behaviour. It was rumoured that there had been trickery with lights and with spirit hands. There were unsubstantiated cases of Hume being escorted to the borders of France for being caught faking at a séance attended by the influential members of European royalty. These cases were of course never reported for the fear of the scandal they may cause to the royalty concerned even though the SPR went to some effort to validate the rumour. They tracked the rumour down to a frequently reported story that Hume was found at the Tuliers or Campiennes or Beritz to be using a stuffed hand which was consequently forbidden from the, and he was uh, consequently forbidden from the imperial court. The SPR tried in France to get to the fountainhead of this story but without success. No definite date was given to the narrative, but it seemed to have probably, probably been a, a form of report spread in 1858. There was, of course, the Lyon case, but it was thought that Hume's evidence was strictly truthful throughout. There is, so far as we can discover, no distinct assertion that the phenomena was produced by fraudulent means. There was also the inference drawn by those who held that messages were given urging that money should be given to Hume. 
the SPR thought that automatic messages by Hume were given in good faith, as such messages will often include false statements as the desires of the conscious self will often shape the messages of the unconscious self, and the medium will have little control over this, which was said to be one of the fundamental problems of mediumship. The Lyon case was thought to be important as an illustration of Hume's character and had no bearing on his abilities or powers as a medium. There was the accusation that skillful conjuring would best explain the phenomena that he produced. However, many of these seemed to have been outside the range of conjuring in the sense of prepared illusions. The SPR uh, suggested that they could have been hallucinations or shared hallucinations which the SPR were at the time investigating under the heading Theosophical Phenomena. The SPR considered the investigations that had been made into the phenomena produced by Hume. Sir David Brewster and Lord Brougham had investigated Hume when he first arrived from America in 1855. This was, of course, before the SPR existed. They were formed in 1882. And Hume was receiving sensational reviews at that time. But Brewster and Brougham were not won over by Hume, but their investigations were inconclusive. Brewster was a respected scientist whose word and views were greatly respected. He crawled under a levitating table and admitted he could not explain how the manipulation of the heavy table was done. William Crookes had constructed a laboratory behind his house at Mornington Road in London. He had also constructed a number of devices which to be used to investigate Hume in 1871, after Hume had agreed to be investigated. The Crookes investigation was widely criticised by those who said it wasn't a scientific investigation at all. During the investigation, Hume seemed to be in control of the experiments, which were not repeatable. It was called a pseudo-scientific investigation, where observations by Crookes were said to be subjective. The magician Harry Houdini, although born three years after the experiments, had known Hume. Regarding the investigation, Houdini wrote that there's not the slightest doubt in his mind that this brainy man, William Crookes, was hoodwinked and that his confidence was betrayed by the so-called mediums that he tested. His powers of observation were blinded and his reasoning facilities so blunted by his prejudices in favour of anything psychic or occult that he could not or would not resist the influence. William Crookes had constructed a series of experiments with Hume, although the SPR wished that they could have been, these could have been more numerous, which in itself implied a criticism. The SPR admitted that Crookes had obtained striking results testing other mediums, indicating that their powers were genuine, and some of these mediums had later been detected in fraud. Anna Ava Fay was given as an example. Crook's tests were to be cooperated by Lord Crawford, and both Crooks and Crawford were pro-spiritualist. In fact, all those who had assisted in the Crooks' investigation of Hume were spiritualists. These included his family members and his assistants. One of Crooks' assistants was Charles Gimmingham, who was a skilled glassblower, and he constructed some of Crooks' equipment. Gimmingham was close to Crooks, known as Charney and he worked unsupervised in the laboratory where Crookes was absent, when Crookes was absent. It was suspected that Gingham, Gingham was a secret accomplice, uh, accomplice fooling Crookes into believing that Anna Ava Fay was a genuine psychic by beating the galvanometer test. 
This was as stated by the magician or the uh, magician historian Barry Wiley. When Faye had retired, she admitted that she kept an electrical circuit unbroken by keeping an electroid under her knee to keep her hands free while Gimmingham was supposed to be supervising. Other people that assisted Crooks included the astronomer William Huggins and Sergeant Cox. Both were known to be sympathetic towards Hume. Crooks told of how, when being tested, Hume was not in a trance, but his manner and expressions were solemn, and he spoke of himself in the third person, calling himself Dan. Crooks several times saw Hume do the fire test. Hume had called him across and told him to watch carefully. Crooks said that Hume put his hand in the grate and handled the red-hot coals in a manner where anybody else would have been severely burnt. Hume once took a large piece of red-hot charcoal, put it in the hollow of his hand, covering it with the other hand, and blew on it until it was white-hot, and the flames licked around his fingers. But there was no signs of burning on his hands. When Hume was not in a trance, frequently there were movements of objects in different parts of the room, with visible hands carrying flowers about and playing the accordion. Crooks told of one of the hands which was a delicate female hand that he thought looked like his sister-in-law or the hand of his sister-in-law. Crooks talked of Hume's levitations which he'd witnessed in his own home. He said Hume had stand, stood quietly for about a minute and then started rising slowly to about 18 inches from the ground. Crooks passed his hands under his feet and over his head to find no means of trickery. On several occasions Hume and the chair and table where he was sitting rose off the ground together. Again Crooks checked for trickery while they were suspended in mid-air. Crooks said that once his wife, who often assisted him, and the chair that she was sitting in rose off the ground. Crooks said the most common occurrence at the seances consisted of the movement of flowers and light objects. Sometimes these were carried by a hand, but normally there was no visible support detected. When touched, the hands felt warm and lifelike, but if retained, they would just disappear by melting away. One of the most striking things that Crooks said he saw was a glass bottle and tumbler rising from the table, which he said he saw in good light. The bottle and glass floated to mid-table and answered questions by knocking against each other. Three taps for yes. They kept floating about six to eight inches up, going in front of each sitter in turn. Hume was quite passive during this incident. There were no wires or strings, and the incident happened in Crooks's home and nobody could have staged the incident. Hume had not been in the room before the seance had started. Crooks said he had never noticed any movements of Hume's hands or body when objects were being moved around. He thought that Hume knew no more about what was going to happen than anybody else in the room. It just happened. Hume was an excellent raconteur, and often involved in animated conversation while the phenomenon was taking place, and his attention had to be called to what was happening. Crooks said he had no doubt that Hume had ever attempted fakery or trickery. Early on, Hume had told Crooks to treat him as a recognised conjurer who was trying to cheat him. He would not be offended, no matter how closely he was tested. Crooks said that he knew Hume found... said those that knew Hume found him to be the most lovable of men, whose uprightness was above suspicion. He was a gentleman. Those that did not know him considered him a charlatan and those who believed him were fools. Many sceptics were not convinced by the Crook's report. Many were very angry with Crook's for the way that he had been so easily deceived. 
Crook Slater also reported favourably other mediums, one of which Florence Cook he was suspected by some of having an affair with. Scientists were very critical of Crook's investigation. Crooks was a gentleman and took people at their word, and probably was not that worldly a person, and it's credible that people could take, take advantage of his old world nature. In 1890, in the proceedings of the Society of Psychological Research, Sir William Cooks published a full contemporary accounts noted by himself of the experiments on Hume in 1871. He talked of the elaborate mechanical tests. He talked of Hume's feats in handling red-hot coals. And Crookes was convinced that he had not hallucinated. But there were no other real insights that came forth. Crookes seemed determined to prove that there was some secret ingredient some secret psychic force that was possessed by the mediums, but not by ordinary humans. However, the scientific community were not accepting Crookes' ideas. He was in danger of losing his scientific credibility. The Crookes report was declined by the Royal Society, the excuse given that there were possible sources of error in his equipment. Shortly after this time, Crookes stopped any research between his subject of physics and the paranormal although he did not change his opinions or views, and he continued to produce articles for the SPR and was president of the Society between 1896 and 1899. Well, I think it's fair to say that he was more of a figurehead, and he was still being criticised during this time for his dealings with Hume and others in the uh, SPR journal. This is when he was president, and they were still implying there had been some sort of cover-up. Even Frank Podmore had not called him out, perhaps to avoid a huge divide in the Society of Psychical Research. Professor Lehman was a Danish psychologist. He wanted psychology to be viewed as a science. He was critical of Crookes, saying that Crookes' experiments with Hume were being considered as the foundation stone of evidence in support of the reality of so-called psychical phenomena. Crooks called them rigorously scientific and carefully planned, with D.D. Hume being tested under scientific conditions, with the room sufficiently lit and competent scientists watching the course of experiments. But, Lehman argued, this did not seem to have been the case. The findings were the product of Crooks's fancy, and it proved to be a good example of a scientist who was prominent in his own field, physics, being the victim of self-delusion we enters another field of which he is ignorant. Instead of conducting a scientific investigation into Hume, Lehman uses Crookes' own notes to show how Hume was in charge of the investigation and that Crookes' notes were put together in a piecemeal, mashin, uh, piecemeal manner made partly during the sittings and partly afterwards. Lehman argued that Crookes had not acted in a scientific manner. Lieben then gave examples of the investigation that pointed to incompetence by Crookes, who claimed that some remarkable phenomena was taking place, but then he only tested for what he was looking for at certain times. Many of these investigations took place in darkness, as they were in a dark seance. Hume directed these science seances. Crookes was told where to sit and what to do, and Hume was free to move around. Hume, of course, being the subject of the investigation. Professor Lehman argued that they were not investigations, just seances organised by crooks, where it, in which he took notes. 
He had some equipment, some gauges to measure certain things. But what they were supposed to prove, it's not known. They were just scientific dressing. Lehman assumed that Crooks used the most convincing of his findings in his report. Uh, Lehman's report was called Superstition, Magic, Religion and Science Magical States of Consciousness in the History of Spiritualism. And that was by Alfred Lehman. Oliver Lodge tried to make a defence of Crooks some years later in 1924 when he was president of the SPR. He congratulated Crooks for being prepared to investigate Hume and he suggested that Crooks suffered for his terminality. The criticism that he received it was suggested by Lodge discouraged others from taking on such work. Lodge said that Crooks had lent him many years ago his private printed records of the investigations, saying that Crooks had told him that he would get most out of the reading, the notes, if he allowed himself the time to allow to imagine the things that happened as narrated. Lodge admitted that he was unable to do this at the time, as his faith in the scientific orthodoxy was so strong. Lodge continued that, in his opinion, Crooks was making a serious attempt to examine some of the extraordinary phenomena that he had experienced with Hume in a simple way, in the hope that they may be observed and tested by the Royal Society. They objected that some of the phenomena claimed was impossible to test in any mechanical or known manner. The episode thus illustrates the difficulties encountered by investigators of novel physical phenomena. Lodge then went off some, some philosophical tangent, arguing that the Earth is an island, an island planet cut off from higher knowledge that we knew. He suggested that we were like an island in the Pacific, cut off from other information. But I suppose he can be forgiven that for that excess. He was, he was trying to be a mediator within the different modes of thought within the SPR. More recently, the magician and sceptic James Randi, I think he recently died, stated that Hume was caught cheating on a few occasions, but this was never made public. Randi was of the opinion that uh, a mouth organs were found in Hume's belongings after his death, miniature mouth organs and it's reasonable to assume that he used this method during his seances. Around 1960, William Lindsay Gresham told Randy that Hume's miniature mouth organs were held in a collection at the SPR. Gordon Stein, the Encyclopedia of the Paranormal, being his probably his most famous work, published books on Hume and Crookes, and like Gresham was an authority on the tricks used by mediums. He did not have a high opinion of Crooks, so he thought conspired with female mediums, possibly for sexual favours, and that Hume was a conjurer and used a small harmonica hidden in his mouth. Milas Culpin, Spiritualism and New Age Psychology, an explanation of spiritualist phenomena and beliefs in terms of modern knowledge, published in 1920, criticised Crooks for his unexplained lapses. For example, he points out that in one experiment, an accordion is placed in a cage under a table and Mr. Hume puts his hand into the top of the cage to do psychic things with the instrument. The temperature of the room is carefully recorded, but that doesn't matter, but imparts a scientific flavour to the observation. Although we are not told why the experiment was done under the table instead of the more convenient position on top of the table. Crooks explains that his assistant went under the table to report that the accordion was expanding and contracting while Hume's hand was still. Colfin arguing that the whole tone of Crooks' experiment seemed amateurish. 
A close friend of Hume's was Lord Adair. Adair was later a government minister and he claimed that he was not interested in spiritualism but he spent, seemed to spend a great deal of time in the company of spiritualists and he published a book in 1870 called Experiences in Spiritualism. Describing his experiences with Hume, it was strongly suspected that Adair and Hume had a sexual relationship and this may have been a method whereby Hume could emotionally blackmail or align his friend into backing up his stories. Lord Adair admitted that he shared a bed with Hume and their relationship was said to be more than platonic. Stories in the Adair book included seeing the spirit of Sasha, Hume's first wife, materialise beside Hume, and also the recent, recently deceased American actress Ada Mekon, who was said to have taken over Hume's body while Adair had a conversation with her. Adair reported all sorts of strange phenomena which were said to occur around Hume. This included the famous incident of Hume floating out of a window and then back in through another on the 16th of December 1868. There were perhaps hundreds of incidents of Hume levitating in front of credible witnesses, but this is the most quoted and well-known incident of Hume levitating, allegedly happening at Ashley House in front of a witnesses who claimed that Hume floated out of a bedroom window while his body was rigid and horizontal, passing 70 feet above the street and then floating through the sitting room window which was next door, when Hume came in feet first. The witnesses being Lord Lindsay, who was later head of the Astronomical Society, Lord Adair and Charles Wynne. When the report was published, the publicity did much to restore Hume's reputation after the Lion case. An account of the incident was first published in Adair's book in 1870. In short, the account tells of how Hume told his three friends not to be afraid and not to leave their places. They had guessed what he was going to do and were in an anxious state. They heard Hume go into the room next door and the window being opened. They say that Hume then appeared standing outside of the window in the room that they were in. They opened the window and he walked in. Hume is said to have joked that if a policeman had been passing they would have been astonished at the sight of Mr Hume in mid-air. Mr Lindsay and Mr Wynne gave similar accounts with some discrepancies. The distance between the two windows was said to be 7 feet 6 inches. The window sill about 12 inches, or other reports say 19 inches. These accounts were later questioned by those sceptical of Hume's power and asked if the combination of suggestion and misdirection in a dark room helped form images in the minds of those witnesses who were instructed by Hume not to leave their place and not to look directly at the manifestation. It was said that Hume had a, seemed to have a unique ability to influence his followers giving examples of Hume grooming the young Adair into suggestibility and that the witnesses were in a mildly abnormal state throughout the experience, Hume perhaps capable of mental suggestion or thought transference. Trevor Hall, investigating the case for the SPR almost a hundred years later, reported the gap between the two iron balconies around the windows was actually four feet and it was feasible that Hume could have passed from one to the other without any assistance. I haven't actually been to the property in Ashley Place in London, although I will next time I visit uh, London, so I can't really comment. Mr Lambert of the SPR thought that Hume had prepared ropes from the roof above the chimneys that hung down next to the windows. 
The night was dark, there was no moonlight, which allowed Hume to swing out and swing in, using his feet in loops at the base of the ropes, which he described as being quite a simple manoeuvre. Lambert said that nobody saw Hume fly through the window in the next room. It was suggested that Hume could noisily open the window, slip back in the darkened room and out of the window, and then wait there on the windowsill. The statement that Hume was never caught in fraud, uh, fraud was made many times, but it wasn't really true. It is true that he was never publicly exposed in fraud. Privately, it was said to have been caught in fraud several times. Frank Podmore, a founder member of the SPR, discussed Hume in several of his books. Podmore argued publicly that Hume should be given the benefit of the doubt. Although privately Podmore knew that Hume had fake phenomena and thought him a clever conjurer who was able to manipulate with his naked feet. In a darkened room he would slip off his shoes and tell the sitters that his body was becoming weightless. With the assistance of a sitter on the side of him, Hume would then squat and stand on the chair while holding his shoes together, slowly rising them in the air. In a darkened room this seemed to convince the sitters that he was levitating. There were a number of reports of Hume supposedly levitating during a darkened seance when his voice came from on high and his shoes were at the sitter's face level so that they could smell the shoe polish, it was said. This would have been achieved by Hume standing on the chair holding his shoes. Just to emphasise, the room would be very dark. Podmore was sceptical of Crook's methods when testing Hume. It was argued that Hume was given ample opportunity to slip into his pockets of an overcoat, a small musical box, a loop of black silk, a hook with a sharp end, and other apparatus that would be required to perform his phenomena during testing. It should be mentioned here that Hume has never searched before going into a seance. The point is also made that the apologists for the spiritualists say that although it is accepted that Muslims do use fraudulent trickery, this does not mean that they do not produce actual phenomena. They use trickery to keep the sitters entertained when nothing else is happening. Ronald Pearsall gives suggestions about spirit hands, saying other mediums using various devices and tricks to simulate hands during a sitting but these don't seem to match with the testimonies given by witnesses in Hume's seances, who clearly saw hands that were human and disembodied. Pearsall's stories of a long kid glove stuffed with, a, stuffed with a substance doesn't really match the testimonies given of Hume's manifestations of spirit hands. Henry Evans, the American magician, explained how Hume could or would have used a small wind-up musical box activated by a button. This would probably be strapped to the leg just above the and behind the knee. During the seance, another musical box was placed on a table which sits the sitters and when the hidden music box is activated, the sitters assume that it's the box on the table which has been placed under a box of cigars or something similar. This is also the method that was used by other mediums. Evans said that Hume's phenomena could have been explained by any conjuring expedience. People describing magical illusions tell you not what has been done, but what they think has been done, which is often a different ma uh, matter. And that was the um, book that Henry Evans wrote in 1897. During the preparation for an article which Hume, that was to be published in the Journal of the SPR for July 1889, the SPR examined claims against Hume. These included the accusations from the poet Robert Browning, 
claiming that Hume rubbed phosphorus to produce spirit lights around the walls of a room near the ceiling so as to appear when the room was darkened. The SPR thought that as there was no written testimony and it all happened 40 years previously that they could not accept the evidence. However, Robert Browning's account was published in the journal of the SPR in July 1889 about a seance that he attended with Hume in 1855 with his wife to be Elizabeth Barrett Browning, that he attended the seance at Ealing, North London. Browning was invited to attend the seance by neighbours with whom Hume was staying. Browning reported that there were the usual table moving and rappings out of answers to questions, failures in the case of himself, he said, and the lady then engaged to be my wife. Hume had told the sitters that they had to wait for the moon had set before the spirit hands would appear, as it needed darkness to see the spirit hands. At the seance, the moon had set about 11 o'clock, or 11 p.m., and soon a spirit hand appeared. We, Robert Browning said, we were assembled about 14 in number around a round table, occupying the whole circumference of it except for a space on the part nearest the window. Hume sat at one end of the horseshoe formed by the company in a low easy chair. By and by in the open space between him and the other end of the horseshoe, a tiny hand considered smaller than that of any adult person could be seen outlined against the the faint light of the window, the object raising from the edge of the table and descending and rising again several times. It appeared to me that it showed itself mainly at two different points, one corresponding to the length of uh, Hume's arm and the other more distant about the uh, placing of his foot. Some of the company were much excited and begged, leaning forward, that they may be allowed to kiss the dear hand. In response to these entreaties, the object rose higher and came nearer, always rising from the edge of the table, the arm, apparently in a loose baggy sleeve, rising with it and never suspended in the air. I thought I could see a slight movement in the shoulder or upper part of Hume's arm corresponding with movements of the spirit hand. The outline of the upper part of Hume's arm moved as the spirit hand advanced to meet the persons far from the window and who were leaning towards it to approach nearer the arm or whatever it was that supported the spirit hand. The movements of both plainly corresponded and at length to the whole edge of the table between the two objects. This was outlined against the light. I saw continuous connection in the upper outline of Hume's arms and the thing, whatever it was that supported the spirit hand. The situation at this point struck me so forcibly, the trick so plain in my eyes, that Hume was operating the hand. And the reverential and adoring expressions of the company, among who I think there were only three, including my wife and myself, who were not firm believers. I was seized with a a strong impulse to laugh. I restrained myself from making any sound, but I felt my shoulders shake as we were wedged closely together. I being next to a lady who must have felt the movement, and clearly did so, for she immediately said that she thought that it had enough now, and it was suggested that the lights had better been brought on. These are the simple facts which I am ready to confirm personally, if the necessity should arise. But the affair is associated with persons and events in a way that would make it more more than undesirable should it be a subject of a public discussion, so therefore I admit the names. And for the same reason I do not desire my name to appear. 
I gave the facts simply for the personal information of your two friends, who by kind investigation they are making into this matter. This was as told to Frederick Myers of the SPR on the 27th of July, uh, January, I beg your pardon, 1889. There were other allegations that Brownie had caught hold of Hume's naked foot during the seance. A claim also made by the editor of the Cornell magazine, Frank Greenwood, who said that he had also caught hold of Hume's luminous foot. So that was all as related by Robert Browning, the famous poet. It has been said that Hume sometimes caused what seemed a rational dislike. Charles Dickens referred to him as a scoundrel and refused to attend any of his seances. Other well-known critics included uh, a home seance would include George Eliot, who was reported as thinking that Hume was a charlatan. Thomas Trollope claimed to have tricked Hume with false information speaking to a friend when he knew that Hume was listening and it was later mentioned in a seance. The scientific community were not impressed with Hume. Two of the best-known scientists of the day, Michael Faraday and Thomas Huxley, were outspoken critics of Hume, as well as Brewster. Fellow scientists Faraday and Huxley were prominent contemporary critics of any claims that were made by Hume. Browning and his wife Elizabeth Barrett Browning differed in their attitude to Hume. Discussions between the Browning and his wife on the subject continued and was always ended in disagreement. There were suggestions that Browning had heard uh, rumours that Hume was a homosexual and his effeminate actions enraged Browning, who has been suggested realised that he had homosexual tendencies himself that he kept under control. After his wife's death in 1861, Browning's portrayal of Hume as Mr Sludge, the fake medium. But Browning's actions were thought unfair even by other critics of Hume. However, equally ridiculous claims were made against Browning. Hume's wife suggested that Browning took a dislike to uh, to Hume because the spirits that appeared during the seance that they attended favoured Elizabeth, his future wife, rather than him, which had resulted in Browning being said to be jealous. And Mr Merrifield reported to Myers, Frederick Myers of the SPR, that how a seance with Hume during July 1855 at Ealing, North London, there were 14 sitters around a table in which two windows were opened onto a lawn. I think this was the same house belonging to the Rhymers that Robert Browning had visited for that sitting. There were levitations of the table, tapping played, um, rapping played on an accordion under the table, and so on, but there were no spirit hands. Later the same evening, Hume gave another seance, with only moonlight coming in through the window. This time an object resembling a child's hand with a long white sleeve attached to it appeared visible by the light of the moon. But this was also sufficient to, uh, so Murrayfield claimed, to see that it was attached by a device to Hume's shoulder and arm. This was cooperated by the lady who had become Mrs. Merrifield. This seemed to be the only case of fraud on Hume's part that was made on first-hand experience to the SPR that was written down shortly after the incident. And, of course, it was a very, very similar incident to that as experienced by Robert Browning at around the same time. I think 1855, this is when um, Hume first came across to, uh, to Britain, and um, he wasn't 
being that closely investigated during the seances and I think he probably if he was faking could get away with a bit more anyway after Hume retired he still dabbled with spiritualism he seemed to realize that it was a good time to retire Hume managed his reputation well insisting that he was not in control of any phenomena that he produced it just comes and goes so if a seance didn't feel right for him and this was often the case nothing happened much of the most impressive phenomena, as I said, came early in his career, when perhaps his critics weren't so insistent. It could be said that Hume rarely performed before groups of more than ten people, and it suggested that he could choose some of the sitters who he could rely on to be supportive of him. Hume could also use the excuse of his poor health to counsel seances at short notice, or leaving a seance if things were not going well citing health reasons as he operated in polite society among the upper classes his word would be accepted Hume's second wife Julia was to publish a book about his life and this was called D.D. Hume His Life and Mission and it was published in 1888 this being published about a year after his death Frederick Myers had arranged to with her to go to Paris to check on the sources of the book and became friendly with her this was the co cooperation between the SPR and her. The SPR were anxious not to be too dogmatic about Hume's claims, as they wanted to prevent, as I say, any large divides appearing in the society. The SPR was quite a spectrum of different opinions. There were spiritualists and sceptics. So, the SPR reported that Madame Hume had been good enough to meet with one of us, Mr Myers, in Paris, and has been there allowed to freely examine the collections of documents on which the book is to be founded. He thus went through the letters of more than a hundred correspondents to authenticate them, and Myers recognised many of the names and the handwriting. Perhaps to end this chapter, uh, or this podcast, we'll consider another anecdote regarding D.D. Hume, as it seems impossible to come to any conclusion about him. This was written by Mrs. Honeywood of 52 Warwick Square, and she was well acquainted with Hume, Hume for 25 years, and attended many seances and took notes at most of them at the time. She had been kind enough to give the SPR, Mr. Myers, the following particulars orally in further explanations of her testimony were printed in the magazine Life. So she writes, Throughout the many years during which I knew Mr. Hume, most of my friends were complete disbelievers in spiritualism and would frequently repeat to me rumours to his discredit. But I never once heard of any first-hand account of any kind of trickery on his part. So as far as my own experiences went, I found him always anxious to give the fullest opportunities of investigation. He was a man of open, childlike nature, and as far as I ever saw thoroughly honest and truthful. His utterances in the trance state were much superior in thought and dictation as to his ordinary talk and ordinary life. As regards communications showing identity of spirits, I believe that many of these were never mentioned by the persons receiving them. I've often seen human trance whispering to people who afterwards said they received messages proving identity. Often too he would in imitate the gestures of the person he could not have seen, which gestures were recognised as being characteristic. I myself received a few proofs of identity. I may mention one, 
which, although not very striking to others, convinced myself. I knew Mr. Coddy Gratton, who once or twice talked with him about a Mrs. X, of whom he thought very highly, but who I distrusted and did not wish to know. One day, however, I met him in the park walking with Mrs. X and another lady, and introduced me to Mrs. X. I said a few ordinary words, and the incident was over, and I think it was most improbable that Mr. Hume, who did not know Mrs. X, could have ever known anything about the matter. Shortly after, Mr. Gratton died, and at a seance, soon after that, the name Gratton was given with a message to me. He said, you were right and I was wrong. I asked him, where did we last meet? In the park, was the reply. Well, so ends another uh, podcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. I'd like to thank you for listening to it. Until next time, I'll say goodbye.